Zachary Bartel is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there, they're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of HarperCollins. And the 2015 Carol Award for Debut Novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. I think I've determined that almost half of you who listen to this podcast also listen to the Gut Check podcast. And if you do, you know that our release schedule could best be described as sporadic. Over the past three years, we've gone through seasons where we released one episode a week. We've gone through seasons where we've released once a month. And during a week in Israel, we actually recorded four episodes. It all depends on what's going on in our lives. Ted's a full-time college professor, and I'm a pastor, and both of those jobs tend to have periods of less activity and a lot of freedom, and then periods of frantic 70-hour weeks. Sometimes they're predictable, the natural ebb and flow of the school year or the church year, and sometimes they just come out of left field. In addition, we both occasionally have writing deadlines that require every spare moment and all of our creative mojo. But my goal going into this new program was that it would be like clockwork, dependable. And with the exception of changing the release day from Tuesday to Wednesday, it sort of has been. I mean, it's still out on Wednesday if it shows up at 11.52 p.m., right? Anyway. Things pastoral are really squeezing out any extra time I might have had this week, but I'm committed to bringing one chapter of Clinch every week until the thing is done. I do not want to lose the momentum that I've got going here. So I guess what I'm saying is that this will have to suffice as the not fiction portion this week. Just me putting out a call for questions. You see, I've led workshops quite a few times on the topic of indie versus traditional publishing. And one thing I learned early on is that with this topic, you need to leave a lot of room for questions. The first time I taught on this topic at a writing conference, I finished with my content about three minutes before the session was scheduled to end. And I asked, does anyone have a question? And about 25 hands went up and I was able to answer about two questions, which was dissatisfying. And so I'm toying with having an app where I answer questions if there are any. For example, what's it like to write for a big publishing house versus uh, independently? Any questions about indie books in general? Uh, if you're an author looking for advice or maybe you're looking to avoid my mistakes. Or if you're a reader and you're just curious about any aspect of, of Christian publishing and writing books, I'd be happy to field your questions. And if you have other questions that I wouldn't know the answer to. For example, what it's like to be a super successful traditionally published novelist. That's fine too, because I can bounce your questions off a whole bunch of authors I know. I'm in regular contact with you know Cliff Graham, uh, and Terry Blackstock, Colleen Coble, Deanne Mills, Danny Petrie, Kristen Mapes, I could go on and on. Also, I'm planning in the winter to have a few apps with some brief author interviews, which I think will be interesting. 
Actually, I hate that word. I need to find a better one. So if you do have any questions, please feel free to shoot them to me at Zach with an H, real Zach's, spell it with an H, Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. And without any further prologue, let's get back to the story of Trenton Marsh and the little town of Clinch Rock. Previously on Clinch, Trenton wanted to grab for the contents of the drawer, but stopped himself. This was Judith's big moment, and it had to collide with enough force to change her momentum. Seemingly before he could write this final letter, Cassell went the way of all flesh, leaving me with a single clue. Beneath the fire. Adam sat at his desk in the pastor's study. He thought of Trenton and their archery tradition and how he'd missed it in order to sit in an empty office to satisfy a curmudgeon who would never actually be satisfied with Adam as pastor. Let's go check out this mine. Trenton could see the chisel marks on the wall. Be quiet a minute, Trent whispered loudly. What? I said, shut up a second. Yes, he definitely heard voices. Then the woman walked into Trenton's field of vision and he almost let go of his tenuous grip. It was Zoe. Trenton swallowed a gasp. What was Officer Cash doing here with Zoe? Clinch, a novel, chapter 11. Quote, Jesus never said no to anyone who asked for his help. When we say no to an opportunity to exercise insane faith, we're refusing to be like Jesus. From Insane Faith, A Guide to Extreme Christianity for the Truly Faithful by Stephen Branding, page 201. Trenton? It was Judith's voice, just barely audible, bouncing up through the twists and turns of the rock-hewn passage. He dropped back down from his perch and scrambled as quickly as he could back to the point where it met the main tunnel, scraping up his arms in the process. Hey, where'd you go? She was closer now. Trenton wondered if they could hear her above ground. Shh, quiet, he chided in a whisper. He could see the light from her cell phone in the distance and ran toward it, practically doubled over. What's going on? She asked. We've got to get out of here. John Cash is up there. Johnny Cash? She snickered. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, he's dead. No, Officer Cash, the policeman. Judith's face went sour. Wait, is he that tubby guy with the buzz cut? Yes, let's go. That jerk gave me a ticket because he said my motorbike was too loud. Fascist. Who cares about a ticket, Judith? Do you realize how dead we are if my dad finds out we were crawling around down here? Good point, she said. To the iron horse. She turned sharply on the balls of her feet and paused for a moment as if waiting for a cape to whip around behind her before taking off down the tunnel. In less than five minutes, they were again climbing the fence, something Trenton did not want to be doing in a hurry. They hopped on her bike and left a cloud of dust behind. Where to now? She shouted back at him. He felt a sudden urge to unload all of this on his dad. Things were getting way out of hand. Hiding secret antechambers, sneaking into condemned mines, running from the police. He wanted to come clean. He wanted his dad to run all this stuff through the proper channels and simplify everything. And above all, he wanted him to talk some sense into Judith. If anyone can do it, dad could. Well, she asked, let's go to church. Good idea. Pulling up to the church, they passed Wally Summers, adding the words office hours, Thursday 7 a.m. to 1 p. to the movable type sign. He scowled for a moment at the two teenagers on the loud motorbike and then returned to his task. Upon entering the church, Judith made a beeline for the fireside room, which is what the congregation called their fellowship hall on account of the fireplace and mantle centered on the outer wall, despite the fact that Trenton had never seen an actual fire there. 
She pulled away a decorative hinged screen and removed the iron rack with its three old birch logs covered in a fuzzy layer of dust. Just like the fireplace in the parsonage, there was a small door beneath access to the ash chute. She opened it with a flourish, but only found a dozen Legos stuffed down there and forgotten long ago. With little care, she pushed everything back into place and bounded out of the room, up the steps to the second floor. Trenton couldn't keep up with her. He found her in the preschool room, examining the sheetrock that now covered over the old fireplace there. A chalkboard was mounted on it, full of Sunday school graffiti. I bet it's behind this, she said. No, it's not. I helped put it in. The elders were afraid a kid would try and climb up the chimney, so they voted to block it off. It was like four or five years ago, tops. Trust me, there's nothing behind there but more cobwebs. Besides, this is probably the place where Wolcott looked the hardest. It was definitely marked on the map. She slumped in defeat. Then why did you want to come here? I don't know. I thought it was worth a shot. Hey, my dad's here. Let's stop in and say hello. Yeah, why not? The door to the pastor's study was open a crack. A woman's voice, soft and tentative, was saying, Pastor, I can tell that he's into something illegal, or at least something shady. Judith froze and cocked her head, clearly listening in. Trent grabbed her hand and gave a little tug. They should not be hearing this. She was unmoved. But how do you know? He heard his dad ask. Just the way he's been sneaking around. Trent got right in Judith's face and whispered, We need to go. She waved him off. He's meeting up with different men in our garage, the woman was saying. He even snuck out in the middle of the night last week. I pretended I was asleep when he came back, but he was gone two hours. Trent pulled as hard as he could on Judith's arm, intent on physically pulling her away. She still didn't budge. He couldn't believe how strong she was. There may be a perfectly reasonable explanation, Marilyn, the pastor said. Have you asked him about it? I did, and that was the scariest part. He got this look in his eye, so threatening, and he knows he intimidates me to begin with because he's so big and he has such a temper. Judith's face hardened as she listened. There was something in her eyes that truly scared Trenton. He took a step back, abandoning the idea that she could be compelled to move. The woman, Marilyn, continued... He trapped me up against the wall, and he said that if I ever asked him about what he was doing again, or if I ever told anyone about it, I'd be sorry. She began to sob. And when did this happen, exactly? Trenton immediately recognized the change in his dad's voice. He was in cop mode now, sorting out the details so he could take the proper action and bring about justice. Oh, Pastor, no, Marilyn said. He can't know I was here. I'm not telling you this as the chief of police, but as my pastor. I need advice and, and prayer. I don't want trouble. Right. Judith clenched her fists at her sides. She was obviously feeling the same impulse as the pastor in his study. Trenton was feeling compassion for his father. He was so in control and confident as a police officer, so in his element. It was horrible to hear him drowning like this. Well, he was saying, let's, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come to you today to ask that you be with this woman so that she can Judith quietly backed away, heading down the hall and out the front door of the church. Once outside, she put her hands on her hips and set her jaw. How many Marylands do you know who go to our church? She asked. Because I only know one. This is none of our business, Judith. And that's her car, she said, pointing at a battered old Lumina with a clinch rock wrestling bumper sticker. She looked over to Trent. Marilyn Fisher. Look, we shouldn't have been eavesdropping in there. Just let my dad deal with this, okay? But he can't know. Don't you see? Confidentiality. The confessional and all that stuff. He can't go the cop route. 
He's stuck. But I'm not. Trenton grabbed two handfuls of his own hair and yanked. What a colossal failure this day had been. It was barely noon, and yet he'd already tried three different ways to get Judith back on a path of sanity, only to push her three times in the opposite direction. You got something on your mind, Trenton? She asked. Go ahead and tell me. I'd love to hear you defend that scumbag. I'm not defending anyone, but don't think I'm in the dark about what's going on here. This is about Coach Fisher kicking you off the wrestling team. Now you've got a reason to go after him somehow, and you're grabbing onto it. Think what you want, Judith said. You mind walking home from here? No, that's fine. She nodded and remounted her bike. Good, she said. I've got some stuff to do. She revved up the bike, the scary look still in her eyes, and left a patch of rubber in front of the church. Trenton hovered there, near the door. Should he wait for Marilyn to leave and then bring this to his dad? Put it all out on the table? No, it would break the poor guy. He could hear in his voice how on edge he was, how incompetent he felt. He wouldn't be the one to lay down this flaming bale of straw that would break the camel's back and immolate it in the process. Besides, with his dad now in full cop mode, there's no telling how he'd respond to the news that he and Judith had been trespassing and exploring the dangerous depths of the copper mine. Trenton did not feel like hearing for the 10,000th time the story of the little girl up north who fell into a mine shaft in the 60s and died. He didn't want to accidentally instigate an internal investigation against Officer Cash and an interrogation of his own girlfriend, was Zoe his girlfriend, over what was probably a misunderstanding. And despite all his reservations and the growing disquiet he felt, he sure didn't want to hand over the letter, diary, and map. It wasn't his to hand over. At the end of the day, nothing had changed. This was still Judith's secret. He'd given it to her, and he couldn't take it back. Trenton bummed around downtown for a little while, grabbing a dog from Coney Heaven, then dropped in at Jason's house. They played a couple hours of Call of Duty until Mrs. Dufresne literally pulled the plug and insisted Jason attend to an ever-growing number of unfinished chores. Figuring he may as well tackle some of his own overdue tasks, Trenton returned home and began unpacking. He was surprised how quickly it went. By the time he felt hungry for dinner, the entire first floor was done and a huge stack of broken-down boxes sat twined together to be taken to the recycling center. He rewarded himself with a few more pages of the diary. Starting at the end, he moved backwards, reading in reverse about the crisis of faith that led Jeremiah Walcott to abandon his quest for the missing money. He was slowly getting better at deciphering the tiny, faded writing, but it still took 20 minutes and two passes to read each page, one to sort of translate the barely legible text into legible English, and once for actual comprehension. At about 8 o'clock, Trenton was contemplating unpacking the boxes in the workshop and garage when his cell rang. His boss. Hello, he answered. Trenton, it's Todd. How you feeling? Any better? Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. I'm, I'm fine. Good to hear. Hey, I got an opportunity that I thought you might want to jump on since you called in sick today and showed up late yesterday. He paused, as if Trenton might commit right now, sight unseen. Yeah, what is it? I need someone to come in real early tomorrow morning, about five. I'm getting a new delivery of countertops at ten, and I need all those air conditioners and ceiling fans and all that other stuff moved off that wall in the showroom and into the back. It'll take some time. You can make up for the income you lost today. Trenton hesitated. He felt an unexplainable sense of obligation, probably based on having lied when he called in sick. But five in the morning? I'll pay you overtime, Todd said. How about that? No, I'll do it. So you're saying yes? Yes. All right then, see you tomorrow. 
The moment the call ended, Trenton remembered. He and Dad had rescheduled their early morning archery for tomorrow. He felt sick to his stomach at the thought of putting it off yet again. But it hadn't been Trent's fault the first time. And of course, they both had jobs and responsibilities. Anyway, they'd just have to push it off to the next week. Yeah, no big deal. But the thing was, Trenton didn't believe any of that. Trenton stared at the alarm clock. 4.30 a.m.? Was that even a real thing? It looked like some sort of novelty joke time one might buy at Spencer's Gifts. All the same, he was able to get up, showered, and on his way quickly and found himself unlocking the door to the resale shop at about ten minutes to five. He yawned violently. As far as he was concerned, this would make up for any time he showed up late, past or future. He cracked open a wattage energy drink and took a sip. Ugh, tasted like perfume. How could Jason drink this swill? Before he commenced lugging and dollying all this junk around, Trent wanted to get a feel for the space he had to work with. The stack of window AC units was comically tall, and he had no idea how he would begin to dismantle it. There was a high-low in the storage room, but that was off-limits to Trent. He went back there to get a lay of the land, hoping a plan might present itself. He scowled. It'd be just like Todd to send him in here unprepared and ill-equipped, and then blame him for not being able to do the impossible. Trenton froze. He was not alone back here. He could hear someone moving around. Was it Todd, here to help him? That'd be nice, but something in his gut told him it was no one here to help. It was men, several men, speaking in hushed tones. You were going to just leave your hammer, one of them said. You trying to get us caught? I ought to bash your head in with it. I'm sorry. Choke on your apology. Just go get it. We need to be out of here like ten minutes ago. Footsteps, coming this way. Trenton darted into the shadows and crouched down behind a gas stove. He heard someone walk past him and through the double doors to the store proper. A minute later, another man followed, pausing in the doorway to call out, Hey, I almost forgot. Take something. Doesn't matter what. Just something they'll notice. Yeah, okay. How about this? Fine. Let's just go. No excuses. No delays. But we didn't even look in the... We're just getting it started. We'll have plenty of time to look later. All the time in the world. The two men were walking back through the storeroom when one of them dropped something. It rolled, slowly, toward Trenton as he crouched there in the shadows behind the stove, right toward him. He willed it to change course, for someone to grab it before it reached its destination, but no one did and it kept coming. Trenton pressed himself as far back into the darkness as he could, trying to flatten his body against the chest freezer that blocked him in. The little round object bounced off the back wall, rolled up to Trenton, bumped against his leg, and toppled over. A tin of tobacco. Blue Wolf chewing tobacco. Trenton pushed his hand up against his mouth. Footsteps were now approaching his hiding place. He offered up a frantic prayer as he saw a hand reach around the stove, searching. He pushed the tin into its path. A moment later, the hand was gone, along with the tin. He heard the two men rejoining at least two others and leaving out the back door into the alley. After another 30 seconds, he finally took a breath and emerged from behind the stove. For some reason, his first thought was of Judith. What would she have done? Fought four men? Tailed them back to their hideout? For sure she wouldn't have hidden like a child and let them get away. Then again, maybe they hadn't made a clean getaway just yet. If Trenton could spot their vehicle, maybe get the license plate, his dad could arrest them. Relieving the pressure, freeing him up to finally retire. 
toppling Judith's whole case for why she had to become a masked hero. This was the silver bullet. Trenton gathered his nerves and slipped out the door into the dark alley. He had no way of knowing which way they went, but his gut told him away from the street, toward Unity Park, which was itself just a glorified alley. He moved quickly through the darkness. Yes, there, four big guys in heavy work coats, moving quickly, avoiding the streetlights. He only saw them in silhouette and from behind, but he was analyzing each of them in turn, their gait, their build. Was one of these men Ed Piper? Or was there actually someone else walking around Clinch Rock with a tin of Blue Wolf? On Water Street, they all made for an old red pickup with a busted headlight cover. He thought of waiting for it to drive by so he could write down the plate number. But what if they turned down homes? He'd never have a chance to see it. No, he had to get around the back of that truck. The men were moving a little slower now. Maybe he could run around the block fast enough to come up from behind and catch the plate before they drove away. Trent took off with everything he had. Down Front Street, left on Charlevoix. His lungs were on fire. He pushed through it. He hadn't sprinted any real distance in at least a year, and his side began to ache. Then he saw an opening, a narrow alley that cut through between the antique mall and Sweet Tooth Candy Shop, and he turned down it. His legs screamed as he commanded them to keep on chugging. He was so close. He heard the truck's engine come to life with a sick rattle. It wasn't far. A discarded roll of carpet jutting out from behind a dumpster snagged his shoe and Trenton went down, hard, his hands clapping against the concrete just before his chest made contact. No time to lick his wounds, though. He bounced up, feeling it in every joint and muscle. Ten more feet, lurching ahead, he cleared the alley and poked his head out to Water Street. He was indeed behind the truck, which was just pulling away. There was only one problem. No license plate. Okay, think, son. Did you see anything else at all? Trent had called 911 the moment the truck left his sight. Dispatch had, in turn, contacted the station where Jesse Finn called the chief at home. Within ten minutes, he was at the scene of the crime, hugging his son, a hug that went on a little longer than was comfortable for Trenton. Then, the moment he broke the embrace, he'd launched into a witness interview that was all business. That's it, Trenton said emphatically. I can tell you three more times, but it won't change anything. It was a beat-up old red truck, the headlight was broken, no license plate. And you didn't get a good look at any of the men, just this tin of chewing tobacco. Trenton had described everything in detail, but hadn't mentioned Ed Piper by name. He didn't know why, but it seemed silly to assume his dad would even want to know the name of a random local man who chewed that brand. Besides, whenever he conjured an image of Ed, he always saw him leaning against the wall at the soup kitchen. Not skulking, not suspicious, just sad. Like he was there not for the food, but just to be around someone, anyone. Trenton felt a lump of emotion trying to claw its way up his throat. Sorry I canceled with you this morning, Dad. I, I shouldn't have even been here. Hey, don't worry about that. I'm just glad you're okay. I love you, son. I love you too. Okay, I've told Todd he's not to have anyone working alone before sunup until we catch these guys, and that you're getting the rest of the day off with full pay. He agreed. Dad, that's stupid. I can... No discussion, his father said. You're shook up. You need some downtime. Go waste the day, all right? Be a kid. Play the X-Station 300 or whatever it is. Just relax. Officer Cash will give you a ride home. Trenton felt his skin crawl. At least let me walk home, okay? His dad shook his head. Nope. Don't make me cuff you, buddy. 
He winked and smiled. Think of your old man. Scared the hell out of me to get that call. My son was in the building when they broke in? He shuddered a bit. Just let me have this one. Okay, Dad. Officer Cash drove exactly the speed limit back to the parsonage. Trent wanted to mine him for information about why he'd been with Zoe that afternoon, how he knew her, what interest the two of them shared in a long-abandoned, never-successful copper mine. But there was no way to do it without tipping his hand. So, instead, he made small talk. So, you're from Detroit? He said. Rochester Hills, actually. I grew up there. Not much more exciting than this place. You and Tango, or Officer Terrell, are both from there, right? The cop laughed. It was a very friendly and disarming laugh. <laughs> Do me a favor, kid. Call him Tango. That's hilarious. He needs a good dose of humility once in a while. The smile stayed on his face for a few seconds, fading gradually, pleasantly, like the orange light at sunset. You, you guys known each other long? Yeah, he's my brother-in-law. Before that, my best buddy. Barton offered me the job here in May. Turns out our families were already thinking about moving up north, going a little more rural. So I said, tell you what, you can have two for the price of two. He laughed again. This your place up here? Yeah. They pulled into the driveway, and Trenton offered, thanks for the ride, as he exited the car. Don't mention it, kid. Take it easy. Sorry you had such a rough morning. He put the cruiser in reverse, waving as he backed out. Somehow, Trenton knew he meant it. The cop really was sorry about what had happened to Trenton. And that was fitting, because Trenton was also sure, absolutely sure, that one of those four men who broke into the home store that morning had been Officer Cash. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gutcheck Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut.